This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and I'm Michael Moore. We have an excellent guest returning to Rumble here today. The great economist Stephanie Kelton is going to help explain what's happening with the economy, what we should be thinking about when we hear them talking about inflation, and what Democrats in Congress need to be doing right now to help the economy and help the American people. Um, But before we bring uh, Stephanie out here, I have a a special Thanksgiving episode request for all of you. Um, uh, This year, I'm going to put my Thanksgiving episode together a couple days before Thanksgiving. Uh, Usually every year on that day, um, I I, uh, go live. Usually I step out away from the dinner (laughs) so nobody can hear me. And quietly, I speak to all of you, checking in, seeing how it's going with your conservative uh, brother-in-law, your uh, QAnon aunt, uh, whatever. Actually, it's just gotten worse, I know, each year. So this year, I thought what I would do, instead of you know interrupting your dinner and my dinner to commiserate uh, with our situation, that I am going to give out some advice, some coping techniques to all of you, and some good talking points to, to those at the table that just seem to be a lost cause. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to participate in next week's episode with me, but I want you to do it now or over the weekend. I want you to send me uh, what questions or concerns that you have before entering your Thanksgiving dinner debate with Uncle Ned or Grandpa Herb. All right? I'm not going to wait till that day to help you out. I'm going to help you out beforehand. So what questions do you think I could help you with? Um, what do you need an answer to that can make your Thanksgiving dinner more pleasant this year? Okay? You, you, you know what I'm talking about. I have a ton of built-up advice because most of us didn't get to have Thanksgiving last year. So I've got two years of thoughts about this, about how to deal with the unruly uh, uh, conservatives uh, at the table. So all you have to do is email me at Mike, M-I-K-E, Mike, at michaelmoore.com, mike at michaelmoore.com, or send me a voicemail. Uh, There's a link right here on the description page of this episode. Uh, All you do is click on it, and it sends you to my voicemail, and you get one minute. I have to limit it to a minute because, you know, a lot of people call us. So you get one minute to leave your voicemail and ask me, what is it that you need help with at Thanksgiving dinner? How can I help you? Just think of me as like the, I'll be like the invisible dinner guest. I'll be sitting right next to you helping you deal with the curmudgeons and the Neanderthals who have decided to eat turkey with you. And and for those of you who have been so generous in letting them in the house when you know they shouldn't be there, all I can say is uh, God bless you or good luck with that. Also, I want to give a big thank you to all of you who keep continuing to check out the new More store with our Rumble uh, t-shirts and uh, coffee mugs and ball caps and and uh, uh, other various items uh, that would make a nice uh, holiday gifts here. So uh, go to the Moore store. That's at store.michaelmoore.com. Uh, a portion of all the proceeds go to help the various causes and movements that we support here on this uh, podcast. And some of it also goes to help uh, the efforts to bring back the arts and civics into our public schools. So store.michaelmoore.com. Uh, uh, ball caps, coffee mugs, uh, T-shirts, stickers, hoodies. Uh, it's all there. And uh, and uh, thank you to all of you who have already uh, got your Christmas gifts there for people. That's very cool. Um, I also want to thank all of you uh, who have written to me suggesting new items for the Moore Store. I love this. We're going to do some of this. If you have any ideas, just email me at mike at michaelmoore.com, and uh, we'll see what we can get up in the Moore Store here um, after the holidays. And a quick reminder to all of you 
that you can go to michaelmore.com right now and sign up for my free email list. You should be on this list. You're listening to my podcast. You'll get all these Rumble podcasts emailed to you. You'll get everything that I write, all my columns and letters and things like that. Uh, it's, it's all for free. You'll get news and updates and things that we're all working on, things that we're trying to make better in this country. So uh, just go to michaelmore.com and sign up. It's free. It's a free sign up. Uh, a box will pop up. It'll ask you if you want to uh, be a member, uh, which you can do for you know, I don't know five bucks a month or whatever. But you don't have to be a member. You just you're gonna. I'm, I'm, I don't put I don't put my columns. Uh, I don't put these podcasts behind any kind of paywall. So uh, just sign up, and uh, and uh, I, I'll really that'll be a nice Christmas gift to me, uh, just to see all of you on my master list, so that I can um, easily send you this podcast and easily send you my letter each week. Um, and before we bring Stephanie on, uh, can I just also thank our underwriters? Do we have time to do this? Okay. Oh, great, great. Okay. So um, we have two underwriters for today's episode. Uh, the first one is Truebill, truebill.com. Thank you for supporting this podcast and helping us all save a little money, which is what the purpose of Truebill is. This is how it works. It's an app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, you don't want. You forgot about them. You don't use them. Truebill keeps track of this and makes sure that you know about it and you can stop paying these unnecessary monthly fees. Truebill's app allows you to see all of your subscriptions in one place. And you get to keep the ones that you want and cancel the ones you don't want. And it works. Truebill has over 2 million users and Truebill has helped save them over a hundred million dollars that's how we you know we sign up for all this stuff you know and then you forget i haven't read this magazine in like three years and i'm still paying for it i didn't know it i got a note here from jennifer b and she's writing this to, to Truebill. with your help our family has saved 587 dollars a year on unnecessary subscriptions she writes i really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided you know it's time to start saving for like a new place to live and then all of a sudden, what, $587 a year is going out to this? Man, this is crazy. So start canceling your unused and unneeded subscriptions at Truebill.com slash Rumble. Go right now, Truebill.com slash Rumble, R-U-M-B-L-E. It could save you thousands of dollars a year. That's Truebill, T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L.com slash Rumble. I also want to thank a company called Human human, H-U-M-A-N, and then another N, capital N. And they make uh, these <laughs> these things that I have every day. They're called Super Beats Heart Chews. Okay, I know that's a lot to process there. Super Beats, yes, there, there is beet juice that's put in this. And I know you're thinking, Michael, Michael Moore, beet juice, really? Yes, yes. I had a friend make me a, a birthday a cake, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And, uh, and she didn't say what was in it. She said, just eat this. It was always a dangerous uh, operation here. But I ate it, and it's, it just tasted like the greatest chocolate cake. And she said, I used beet juice. That's beet juice that you're tasting. I'm like, what? Super Beets Heart Chews. It's a great way to start today by popping a couple of these in your mouth, or you can do it in the middle of the afternoon. It's a good pick-me-up. Who doesn't want a replacement for the afternoon coffee or that crazy energy drink? It's filled with grapeseed extract, which is strongly endorsed by both my uh, vegan sister and my vegetarian sister. These super beet heart chews are twice as effective at supporting normal blood pressure and just your general healthy lifestyle. So I use them because I like the taste and I don't need the afternoon coffee. So you can get a free 30-day supply with your first purchase at superbeets.com. Dot com. Let me spell that out for you. Super, S-U-P-E-R, all one word. Superbeats, B-E-E-T-S, superbeats.com slash rumble. Get free shipping and returns and a 90-day money-back guarantee at superbeats.com slash rumble. And now let's bring out our guest here on Rumble today, Stephanie Kelton. So let's just get right to it. Whenever we have a Democratic president or a Democratic Congress in power and they are discussing plans to actually help the American people, 
with health care, child care, elder care, education. We, the public, get bombarded with a corporate propaganda campaign warning us that we can't afford to do it. We just can't afford to do it. And there are two big talking points that corporate America, the politicians that they fund, and the media that they own, they, that they are, there are two big talking points that they rally around to warn us that we can't have the government invest in these popular things that the majority of the American people want. And what, what are their two big talking points? The deficit! And what's the other talking point? Inflation! The deficit or inflation. They pound away at this. And right now, panic about inflation is their biggest angle. Now, here's the thing. There's often a kernel of truth to these lies. Actually, the lies that work the best are the ones that have a kernel of truth in them. If I tell you that there's a Martian out on my porch right now watching me do this podcast, that's a lie. And you know it's a lie. And I can't sell it because there is no kernel of truth to it. But this is how they're getting away with this now, thinking that They've got us all believing that inflation is going to be the end of us. Yes, prices are higher right now. That's the kernel of truth. Prices are higher right now for a lot of the goods we need and buy. And yes, there are reports out that say that prices have risen 6.2% from last October compared to this October. But like a well-oiled machine, the corporate class has now unified to take this inflation panic and use it to weaken President Biden and to try to prevent him from passing his signature Build Back Better human infrastructure legislation. That's the bill with all the good stuff in it to help vast sums of American people. So to help us untangle these lies, these half-truths, we are joined today by one of our favorite economists, Stephanie Kelton. She is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and she was the chief economist for the U.S. Senate Budget Committee in 2015 and the senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. She's the author of The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory, and The Birth of the People's Economy. And that came out just last year in 2020. Um, Stephanie also has a newsletter on Substack, as do I. It's called The Lens with Stephanie Kelton. And you can read it by typing in Stephanie, just how you would spell Stephanie, Kelton, K-E-L-T-O-N, stephaniekelton.substack.com. Stephanie, welcome back to Rumble. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be back with you. I want to dive right into this inflation thing. So they say things have risen 6.2% since last October. My first thought is, I hope so, because last October it was at zero. I mean, the, the, the economy was essentially wrecked, and um, you know, it, none of us knew where things were going to go. So can you tell me and my listeners about how inflation really works? And remember, we are civilians, and most of us did not do well in math or the sciences. Um, so- How does it work? Just the basic explanation. And what are the things that really impact it? Okay. So probably a lot of people who are listening to this are thinking maybe they've heard that inflation happens when you have too much money chasing too few goods. That's sort of a right. Everybody's heard that before. So if if you start there and you say, okay, well, then how do I think about the inflation that we're experiencing today? It's much higher than it normally is. Is it the case that what happened is that somebody made too much money happen? Or is it the case that we're dealing with a too few goods problem? Now, lots of Republicans and a few Democrats, uh, Joe Manchin comes to mind, are you know sort of out there suggesting that the government's overdid it. Basically, all of the all of the fiscal support, the checks that went out, the unemployment insurance top up from the federal government that Congress just put too much money into people's hands and that this is the price of all of that 
um, you know, fiscal support. People have too much money and they're running around trying to spend it into the economy and that's driving up inflation. Now, the other way to look at it is to say, well, let's see, we're in a pandemic. We've been in a pandemic for the better part of, you know, 18 months plus. And people shifted the way they spend money. We weren't able to go out in the early part of the pandemic. You couldn't go to a coffee shop or a restaurant or a hotel. You couldn't go to the gym. You couldn't go to the salon and so forth. So we spent a whole lot less of our money on services and we shifted to buying goods. We were home, many of us, if we were fortunate, working from home, maybe we upgraded our computers, our home offices, we bought new furniture, some of us remodeled homes and appliances, we bought computers and tablets for kids, so we bought goods. Well, goods have to be produced somewhere, they have to be manufactured, and we have a global economy and a global supply chain, and goods have to be brought to market. Well, where do they come from? Well, they come from all parts of the world. And so, you know, what we're experiencing now is so overwhelmingly due to pandemic-induced spike in goods consumption relative to services, and then all of these supply chain bottlenecks. Everybody has seen the TV. You've heard the stories. You know the ports are backed up. Ships are floating out there in the ocean waiting to unload. So the stuff is there. It's just we're having some trouble getting it off the ships, um, getting the containers unloaded onto trucks, driven to the warehouses and to the end consumer. And Michael, we're working through this stuff. We're seeing the supply chain um, begin. We're, you know, the, the kinks, if you think of a chain, right? It's got many links. If any one of those links breaks, then you can't get from the beginning of the chain to the end. You need the whole thing to, to stand strong. And we've had breakages because you get a uh, an outbreak of COVID, and you know a factory gets hit in Taiwan or Malaysia or China. You shut down the third largest port, or partially shut down the third largest port in the world, and so it has disrupted the flow. And when those links start breaking, we see rising prices, and so that's what we've been dealing with. But we're working through it. So. Yes. So I think to a lot of people, this makes sense, obviously, the supply chain piece of this. Trying to put that on on Joe Biden, that there are all those ships docked out at sea off um, Long Beach and uh, I don't know wherever else, up by Oakland maybe. But um, <laughs> what on earth could he have done differently to um, uh, to prevent the, the so-called supply chain uh, problem that we're having? Well, look, he walked in the door at a moment when a lot of this was already baked in, right? We made decisions, and I say we, I mean, you know, producers, CEOs, corporate uh, interests have decided over a long period of time that the way that they want to produce and manufacture things is in this sort of just-in-time uh, model, right, where you go in search of the lowest cost producer. Where can I make this small piece of this thing that I use, and I assemble it together with a gazillion other pieces, and it becomes the final product. Which part of the world can I manufacture that in that has, you know, the lowest environmental standards, labor standards, and I get cheap wages and all the rest of it? Mm -hmm. I go there, I produce that part, that piece, and then I have to move it around to get the next piece snapped on and so forth. So this is the system that we had in place. And this would have happened if Donald Trump had been reelected. The boats would be floating in the ocean. None of that would change. Now, there are things I think people are talking now about, you know, given where we are, are there things that the White House uh, could do to start to alleviate some of the short-term pressures? And I think, you know, people have pointed to things like, you know, if people are paying more at the pump, for example— will help them pay less for other things. Negotiate prescription drug costs. Bring those down. Maybe that can be done through executive uh, action. And maybe there are some other things that, that President Biden could do. But dealing with, you know, the backlog at the ports, he's trying. He's trying to do things like, you know, uh, require that um, people run 24-7 operations at the ports and try to ease that backlog. But mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a big challenge. Let me give you my um, my supply chain anecdotal uh, stories. 
I'll do two quick ones. Um, one is uh, we just started up a, a, a merch store here with my Substack and podcast site. It's called the Moore Store, and it's got the basic you know stuff, uh, the Michael Moore ball caps and the T-shirts and the coffee mug and all that. And and I said to the the people that when we were talking about this last month about are we going to have trouble here, man? People are going to buy this stuff for Christmas. Are we, is it even going to get here? And he said, well, first of all, um, we're not going to have a, a supply chain problem because everything that you're going to have in your store is either uh, uh, union-made, American-made, union-printed. It's all here, essentially. I mean, there's a, probably a few pieces of that that come from someplace else. But basically, my, my goal was to set up a merch store that where the majority of the stuff, if not all of it, uh, is either comes from or made here or printed here or whatever. So, so he said, so you're in good, you're in good shape because you're not depending on, uh, on, yeah. you know, he said, but, but, but the other thing is, is that, um, they're blowing this to such a huge extent. Uh, and it's, um, people don't really know the whole, you can't just, you can't explain su- the supply chain in 30 seconds. But he says, I, I, as a distributor, as a, as a person who helps, uh, you know, uh, people like you and, and others uh, with their stuff, um, I'm not having any problems, number one. I said, wow, that's the opposite of what I heard. My second story is I'm uh, finally, after 20 months, I have two nonprofit art house theaters in Michigan, and I'm opening them um, uh, tomorrow, Friday the 19th here. And uh, they've been had to be closed during the pandemic, and I'm, you know it's not a, not been a safe place to be inside with no windows, no fresh air. So I rehauled the uh, the HVAC system, so there's constantly fresh air coming in, and um, and I put in these hospital size filters that theaters don't have. I did all these things, right? But but then I was told, well, you're going to have one problem: staff. Mm-hmm. Are you going to staff it? Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to work. This is nonstop uh, a mantra of nobody wants to work. I said, I don't think that's true. I think I think if I pay them well, and I think if I think maybe people like to work around the movies, that might be fun. I don't know. Uh, but what are you going to pay them? I said, I don't know. Uh, Eighteen to twenty-three dollars an hour. You mean to be an usher? Yeah. Ticket taker? Yeah. I also I have I have COVID security personnel uh, because we check the, you have to be vaccinated to come in so it's you know you gotta gotta go through a bit of a thing here and so I put it on Indeed the post the post the job on Indeed for the COVID security people twenty two twenty two twenty two fifty an hour um, and within one hour we had thirty to forty applicants in one hour. Mm-hmm. And by five o'clock the next day, we whittled it down to twelve, and then we hired uh, the the top four uh, that will be, you know, doing somewhat of a I don't want to say a risky job, but it's a you know they're going to have to deal with belligerence, you know, from people because of, they don't want to get vac- vaccinated. But I just I, you know I just I just told I <laughs> told everybody this story. This nobody wants to work, and within twenty four hours, I had all the people I needed uh, for that particular job. Mm-hmm. So Stephanie, what's going on here? Because I'm now. I just gave you my two examples. I could be an outlier here, um, but I'm really tired of listening to what my own personal experience uh, is not. And I say to the people in the town where I live in Michigan, yeah, maybe the reason why you're having trouble finding people is that you're paying them nine dollars and thirty cents an hour, which mm-hmm. is the Michigan minimum wage. You know, maybe you should just offer them a little bit more. I can't believe you were offering people twenty two dollars. Well. That's what it takes now. Thank God that that people can make, you know, in Michigan if you if you do if if we had the Bernie minimum wage, the living wage, $15 an hour, oh my god, it would raise so many people up in the state of Michigan uh, with that. You know, I'm paying double to triple that and yes, I have no problem getting people. Um, but I'm not out to make a profit. So I guess that's the big difference, right? I don't know what is the difference. Yeah, I mean, th- this is Kind of a simple. You're, you're laughing now. <laughs> I'm laughing because this is not hard. If if you want to hire workers, there is a wage. There, some people have a reservation wage. They will not come to work in the middle of a pandemic, where, as you said, they can anticipate a certain am- amount of abuse. You know, some segment of the population 
uh, is and can be hostile to workers when they're asked to conform with uh, COVID protocols and so forth. We've seen it on TV. We've seen people, you know, get spit on and punched in the face and and all the rest of it. So, you know, we're especially in these kind of service front facing interacting with the public jobs. So you offer people a safe place to work, which you've done, and a good wage, and you've done that. And lo and behold, you find that people are not only willing, but eager to come out and and compete for jobs like these. So I don't think this is a mystery at all. I think what workers want is a, a safe work environment and, uh, you know, decent compensation. It's not a whole hell of a lot to ask. Okay, but yes, I know. But why is it left to people like you and myself to give a lesson in capitalism to the capitalists? <laughs> that, you know, I, and I tell people, store owners, whatever in town, you know, all you got to do, just pay a living wage, you know. And let's be, start to be honest. For some of these jobs, you don't need a college education. Mm-hmm. Let people compete for these jobs. If they didn't make it, I didn't make it through school. I made it through a year and a half of college. Let I, yes, I'm going to pay you twenty two fifty an hour, and you don't need a college degree because you don't need a college degree to, to be there. Our COVID safety staff, and I had them trained uh, by uh, uh, people from the Department of Public Health. I brought in a conflict resolution and de escalation trainer. Uh, to train them. That's really what they needed to be safe, uh, to do this safely, to not, uh, you know, deal with, like, like I said, the belligerents um, and, and, you know, go home and, and, and live the life you want to live and making a decent wage. What is so hard about that? And why are you and I the ones trying to convince people who believe in capital, if they really believed in capitalism, wouldn't they just make this equation on their own and they'd say, wow, if I just paid a little bit more, I'm going to make a lot more. <laughs> What's wrong with this this picture here? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how to answer it except to say that employers have gotten accustomed to very cheap labor and a pool yeah. of unemployed workers who are essentially desperate for any job. And they haven't had maybe the kind of negotiating um, power that many workers now feel like they do enjoy. You know, for the first time in a very long time, there are actually more job vacancies than job seekers. That hasn't happened in a long time. No, I don't know if it's happened in my lifetime. Yeah, and you know, after the last, so we had a recession, right? COVID-induced a recession. It was the shortest recession in U.S. history, but the recession before that was the Wall Street-induced recession. Mm-hmm. It was the subprime uh, housing oh, crisis, oh eight, right? Oh nine, yep, mm-hmm. I, yeah, and oh seven, that yeah. that so-called recovery was a um, a very anemic and bad for workers recovery. In fact, the jobs that came back were inferior to the jobs that were lost. It took more than six right. years to yes. claw back all of the jobs that were lost in the in the recession. And when they came back, they were inferior to the jobs that were lost. And what I mean is that they were lower wage and lower hour jobs. So employers have had the benefit of cheap, desperate workers for decades. And, you know, this is kind of coming as a shock to the system for them. And they, they're complaining about it. Right. Yes. Because last, as you said, last time around and the last piece of that, uh, 08, um, uh, wall street banking, uh, crisis, um, was the fact that General Motors and Chrysler went belly up. And so the new president, Obama, had to step in and essentially have the government take them over and repurpose them, uh, get their books in order. And Obama became the de facto um, CEO of General Motors and Chrysler, is maybe the best way to put it. But basically, he was in charge. He, the government was in charge. What? The way that he and Biden and others at the time um, decided to pull ourselves out of that crisis was uh, to um, do what you just said. So, for instance, my friends who work on the assembly line at General Motors uh, in uh, uh, Flint or Detroit, they um, they were – I don't know what they were making an hour before that uh, uh, that crash, but I'm going to say 25 to $30 an hour plus benefits – Obama and the government, uh, the Larry Summers of our world, shall we say, made it so that, yes, we're going to get General Motors reopened. The government's not going to be running a car company. But you, the workers, are going to have to, especially the new workers, the ones that are going to come in after this crisis, you're going to get paid $10 an hour. 
$12 an hour. That's it. In other words, the, pre- the pay was like literally cut in half. But because people were desperate for work, people were losing their homes. What are they going to do? And so they agreed to be an, uh, an, an auto worker. And the union had to go along with this for $10, $12 an hour. Uh, and, and some benefits, but not, not like what they were. No pensions, please. Don't even use the B word. Um, so it, it ended up being a bad thing. This crisis, this is, why, this is why the wealthy and the owners are just flipped out because this crisis has not resulted in people being pushed down further, the boot on the neck, put down harder. It was amazing. The fiscal response this time compared to what was done under President Obama after the financial crisis triggered the Great Recession. Basically, last time, you know, you got a sort of one and done. Congress did the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. That was the so-called, you know, Obama stimulus package. It was $787 billion, which sounded to many like a lot of money at the time. Larry Summers, you know, famously... Um, kept that number down. And there were others around Obama at the time telling him this was this was never going to be sufficient. You needed to go much bigger or, you know, you were going to end up with a, a really crappy economy for a long period of time. Larry said, no, 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 we can't touch the word trillion. Nobody's ready for that. And others around him, Rahm Emanuel, David Axelrod, David Axelrod said, people will have sticker shock if you say trillion. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. So we got a fiscal package, one, much too small to handle right. you know, the, the task. And then we ended up with a very, very crappy economy and a slow, sluggish recovery. This time, really incredible, right? The pandemic comes to our shores in March of last year, and Congress, with with very little delay, bangs out a $2.2 trillion fiscal mm. package, the CARES yeah. Act. Yeah. And you see, you know, federal government step up with unemployment um, insurance, right? Federal government says, we'll top up what the state is doing for you. We'll give you an extra $600 a week. Yeah. And we'll expand the coverage. So it includes people who typically get left, left out, Uber drivers and the like. And we'll send checks to almost every household in America. We'll get you $1,200. It's coming in the mail. And we'll do payroll protection programs. We'll help small businesses stay afloat, pay their utilities, keep their workers on payroll and the like. And we, we lost 22 million jobs in the first two months of the pandemic. But then we went on to have the shortest recession in history. And Congress came back and did a $900 billion package in December of last year. And then they came back this March and did $1.9 trillion more. And more checks went out in December. More checks went out in March of this year. You had extensions in the unemployment compensation and rent moratorium. I mean, this was just incredible. Amazing. $5 trillion yeah. or so, right? right. And, and the proof is in the pudding. I mean, there's a reason that boats are floating in the ocean stocked with stuff because people have money to spend. We've lifted almost half of all the kids in this country out of poverty. It's the first time that we had a sharp downturn, a recession, where poverty rates fell. Right. That's right. And yet yet the the people who are pushing this so-called labor shortage, the ghost of of Larry Summers, by the way, it's not a ghost, he's still alive and has written op-eds. And he and, and others of that ilk, uh, they, they're pushing this so-called labor shortage. I have that in quote marks. You can't see me. Um, this, they're pushing this line because they want and they expect a large class of desperate and feckless workers. They need that to make the kind of profits they've been making for the last decade or so. That's what this is really all about. And I it's taken from what you're saying here, Stephanie, I mean, they want the workers to be weak enough to have to work for crumbs because crumbs is all they want to give because if they give more than crumbs, then they're not going to be the gazillionaires that they become and the people that become so rich during this pandemic. Why they would have any problem paying people a living wage or beyond when they have done so well during this town, this town I live in, Northern Michigan, I mean, the real estate it's not just in it's not just in the big cities. This is just a little town up in northern Michigan. It's amazing how I watched people swoop into town, rich people, and buy up everything they could. 
and then turn around and they start selling it for twice or three times mm-hmm. or four times as much as it was just months earlier. It, I'm, people listening to this, I know they've seen this in their towns. It's all over the country. And, and it seems like they, the backbone of this has to be pay people as little as possible. And they're not getting away with it because people aren't showing up to work for little as possible. Because they, if, they, if we had really gotten rid of the pandemic, if we'd stemmed it right away, uh, maybe, maybe they could have pulled this off because people would feel, you know, not as unsafe. But it's, we're not out of the woods. And in, in, in this town in northern Michigan, you can go on the map and look at northern. Michigan is now the number one state uh, this week uh, in terms of uh, COVID infections. And it's uh, the hospital has hit code red for the first time in its 80-year existence. And it's, it's, no, people do not want, want to work. And I have told people, too, who are working the theaters, are, hey, you know, I don't want anybody working when you don't feel right. Now, you know, we're all vaccinated. We're not letting anybody, anybody in without being fully vaccinated. Uh, we are going to take their temperature at the door. So if, if somehow... You know, they've, there's a breakthrough here or whatever, because they haven't been wearing their mask. You have to wear your mask still. Uh, They won't get in the theater. Um, And once in there, there's nobody sitting three or four seats to the right of you or three or four seats to the left of you. Nobody in the whole row in front of you and nobody in the whole row in back of you. That's how I've set it up. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, because, you know, the coronavirus is my enemy. (laughs) So... I am going to I am going to win, and we're not going to let it hurt people, harm people, kill people. That's my attitude. I wish it had been the global response because <sighs> you know when when a f- yeah. factories are shutting down because there's a COVID outbreak in a poor country that we use to manufacture Nike tennis shoes or whatever, I, you know we the global response has been absolutely abysmal. You got what three percent of the population of Africa that's vaccinated. I mean. If we were serious about trying to return to normal, that's what needed to be done. An all-hands-on-deck, global, coordinated effort to stamp out this uh, the spread of, of this virus, and we just didn't get it. The, uh, I, you know, I, have, I have friends who work in Africa. I have a, a, a friend who is a doctor uh, there, and he was saying that, you know, the thing about Africa, what's so sad about Africa is Africans don't play this goofy game of, uh, oh, this uh, this vaccine has chips from Bill Gates <laughs> that they're putting in my body. Africans are so desperate and so wanting of vaccines, medicine, any help. And that if, if we were truly committed, because we will not get rid of this without a worldwide effort. And if we look at Africa like, oh, well, what does that have to do with me in Michigan? Well, uh, the reason our hospital is full started with a virus in China. Did you ever ask yourself, how did China make it to Michigan? I mean, we live, in, we live on a planet that's not really that big. And, and we are all affecting each other with this. But I just, you know, just getting back to this thing about the labor shortage, I want to move on with the next question. It, um, I just, I don't know how you feel about this, and I don't know if, if you are, have to be agnostic about it or whatever, but I, um, I really salute the people that have held out um, I know it's not been easy, um, but inch by inch, the wages go up. Um, more people uh, last month and the previous months, 500,000, I believe, uh, uh, were employed, new, new hires. You know, uh, boy, if we just all stick together on this, I just, I don't know. Uh, What's the, what's the best thing I should should say, Adrian? If you if you can't say because um, wait, are you saying so? We got five hundred and thirty one thousand jobs last month, and we had good upward <laughs> revisions. So, but you're saying hold out in terms of the people who are still refusing yes. to go back to work. Yes, yes. If you can, easy for me to say, but yeah. I'm just saying that I will try to set my example by the, the, the people I hire who are, who are working jobs that you don't need a college education or whatever, but I, I will make, I want them to be paid somewhere between uh, 18 and $23 an hour. And I, I, I just think that's the right thing to do. Um, uh, I, I can do the math, you know, we're, we're going to make money. I, I don't, I don't, you know, you can see a movie in my, in my theater for as little as $7 and, and the popcorn is $2 and the pop, as we say in Michigan, the soda pop, uh, is uh, two dollars, and the candy's a dollar. I mean, I've kept my prices low, and yet um, I can I can tell you right now at the end of, of next year, 
uh, we're going to be okay. So I don't know why other people aren't doing this. And maybe, yes, maybe we won't make as much as we did five years ago or three years ago. But um, don't, don't we all want to live? I do in the community I live in where people are happy. And when they're happy, um, they live good lives and raise happy children. And uh, am I missing the boat? <laughs> I don't think you are. I think it, it, it's, it's a wonderful Thing to imagine. I mean, I, I can't imagine not wanting to see your neighbors and the other people in your community doing well. And you know, that's there. But obviously, we know we know why not everybody feels that way. It's you know, your gain is perceived to come somehow at my expense, and you can pit workers against one another. Clearly, employers think bottom line first, and if there's a potential to you know if they've got to pay a little bit of a higher wage and they've got a choice to either pass that on to the end consumer by raising prices or allow it to come a little bit out of their profits we know most of the time what that choice looks like they push prices up to maintain profit margins so um you know we have a it's greed michael we know this yeah i know uh, and i want to say to those who you call it capitalism, but it really, honestly, in just plain language, it's greed. If, if you were just to pay people a little bit more, instead of owning five homes, you own three homes. Can you get by? Can you get by on, on that? I mean, so that we can all get out of this dark era that we're in. Can you, the wealthy, join in on this? You know, you don't, you don't have to uh, vote for Bernie. You don't have to follow me or anything like that. Um, but, but, how about just for your greater good, if you want to play the long game, aren't you going to be better off if people are better off? One of the other things the government in Japan has done over many years is uh, they call it job owning. Do you know this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they just basically shame companies ahead of time so that they don't raise their prices and gouge consumers and so forth. So the government just gives a little public statement of some kind saying, oh, you don't really want to do that, do you? You know, And then it just keeps, keeps the lid on you know, just how on. greedy corporations right. are going to get. Right. Let me, let me go back to inflation for a second. So uh -huh. here's, here's a kind of a contrarian uh, question. Is inflation all that bad? Now, now my friend... Uh, uh, John Schwartz, who works over at the Intercept, um, he had this great piece uh, in their in their online publication, The Intercept, about inflation not being so bad for the working class that it's more detrimental to the rich, which is why they always are talking about inflation not good for them, but for the working. I mean, yeah, nobody wants to pay another you know uh, uh, fifty cents for a half gallon of milk or whatever, but. Um, it was just interesting reading this. I don't know if you saw it or not, but what's your take on that? That that the sort of panic and the sort of the hyperbole about uh, that how this inflation we're going through now is going to kill us, and it's going to kill Biden's chances of reelection, and the Democrats are going to lose the House and the Senate next year. Well, I mean, just I mean, not, not saying that it doesn't exist, and it, you know, some people obviously it does hurt. Uh, uh, people, but I'm just curious. Uh, I read that and I thought, well, that is a different way of looking at this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit nuanced. And so I would have to know more like lower income people spend a higher percentage of their income on gasoline or rent or uh, health care. And wealthier people pay a higher percentage uh, on housing, for example. So when we talk about inflation, you know, there's a, a consumer price index and there are other uh, price indices and different ways to measure inflation. So you can have headline inflation zooming higher because just one component in the consumer basket is getting much more expensive. So say healthcare. If you had rising healthcare premiums and skyrocketing prescription drug costs and Everything else was staying the same, right? Prices weren't rising, but just healthcare was getting more expensive. Um, that would produce headline inflation, mm -hmm. and so then you'd have to say, well, who who is more hurt by rising healthcare costs? You know, the very rich or the lower income. Usually, when people talk about inflation in sort of class terms, I think they think of the investor class. So you might think of bondholders who 
are getting, you know, interest um, or stock market investors, maybe if if dividends are coming in at a sort of stable pace or your interest on your bonds and inflation is eating up your real gains, then you don't like it, you know, because you're on a in a sense on a fixed income as a bondholder. Um, but it's tr it's just tricky. It depends on what what exactly is getting more expensive because different income groups feel those things differently. Right. So if, if um, well, we know some prices are higher. So is there something a president or Congress can do? Is there something that Joe Biden could do maybe tomorrow, next week, stroke of the pen, uh, that could provide uh, some relief for people? Well, the answer is yes. And the the question really is relief when? In the short term, that's what we'd like, right? We're all feeling the effects of paying a little bit more for that gallon of milk, paying quite a bit more to fill the tank if you're, you know, uh, driving a car that requires gasoline. Um, that's harder, uh, but there are things that he could do to reduce the costs that we pay for other things. So if we were paying a little more for milk, paying a little bit more for gasoline, well, he is sending, you know, three hundred dollars a month to families with kids under six and $250 a month to families with kids, you know, six and over up to 17. And that's in the form of the child tax credit. Right, and that's You're per child, right? Yeah, that's per child. Wow. So yeah. that does help take the sting out of some of that. But of course, in this Build Back Better um, Act that, you know, he's trying to get through right now, there are additional things that will reduce costs for the average person, if you're, you know, if you have uh, spend a lot of money on childcare, well, universal pre-K and doing things to help people find affordable childcare options, negotiating prescription drug costs for people who are paying out the nose for medicines. If we could bring some of those costs down, then yes, your milk costs more, but your prescription drugs cost significantly less, right? right? So what can you do in terms of housing? He wants to build something like a million units of affordable housing. Some of these things take time. You know, there's money going into ports yeah, and bridges the, and rail. Yes, but on those on the things that could happen and are happening now, I mean, this is a very important. I just want to repeat what you just said, that the child tax uh, credit, um, that that families, if you have two kids, you're you're already getting at least around uh, six hundred dollars or more uh, a month. Are you spending six hundred dollars more a month on gas right now, on milk, on eggs? I mean, seriously, if you start to add up and then look at that extra six hundred that you've got per month because of of what Joe Biden has done, I just think like, okay, look, yes, I don't I don't want the gas to go up, but this is a global. First of all, the global price of gas going up is a global issue and um it, it's nothing to do with trump losing or biden winning um this this doesn't get reported enough and so the second thing you mentioned is child care and i mean listen to everybody who's listening right now who has to pay child care right what are you paying uh, a month or even a week 250 300 350 i mean this is it's madness and the fact that he's uh, proposing to set this up so that no more than, what is it, 7% of your income? Mm -hmm. I forgot what the number is. Mm -hmm. 7%? That's it. Okay. It, it can go to chunk. The rest of it, the, the, the government's going to handle this and the, and the rich are going to pay for it. Um, so so that, that $250 uh, for childcare, did you just, did you spend uh, $250 extra on gas? Uh, uh, look, I'm not putting it down. It's, it's, it's serious. Um, you know, I went through the first as a, as a teenager, the first gas crisis there back in the seventies. Uh, and, um, and so what did we do? We started to carpool. Gas was like 20 cents a gallon, by the way. Uh, and we were horrified when it went to 35 cents. Um, but we started to carpool. We started to do things. Uh, people got bikes, bike lanes were created in towns. I mean, you rolled with it because you weren't going to be defeated by it. Uh, to let the Republicans and others start to trash uh, Biden. And, and, and let's be clear. Well, I want to repeat this once again. What we're saying about Biden and, what the, and the good he's trying to do, this is, you're, if you're listening at home uh, or on that bicycle, you're talking to, you're, these are two people who were out on the road with Bernie Sanders. And, and, and Stephanie, of course, had a very important role in helping him put together 
um, essentially his economic package, which, and now the Republicans have finally figured this out, uh, his good friend, and that's not said lightly, his good friend Joe Biden has listened more to Bernie than to Joe Manchin. Already, can we can we put a victory up for that? That that you know the the goodness that he's tried to do is doing is trying to get this bill passed. You know, you and I in the primaries we voted for Bernie. So when you're hearing us say these things about Biden, there's no, uh, we're, we're, uh, you know, this is not an official whatever, right? Can can I bring you into that and say that, or or are you working now for the Biden administration? And I didn't read about it. No, no, I did serve. I mean, I served as one of uh, eight members of the Sanders Biden or Biden Sanders Unity Task yes, that's Forces right. so you on were, the economy. So yes, so after Bernie uh, didn't make it through the primaries, you were on the Biden uh, Bernie economic uh, panel that put together these proposals. That that that's right. That Stephanie, I, and tens, hundreds of thousands who are listening to this right now want this passed. We're not satisfied with this roads and bridges. Thing. Yes, good thing. Good. Thank you. Internet, especially up where I live, rural. Thank you. But man, it's looking more and more like this is going to, they're not going to do it in the year 2021. This is going to get pushed to 2022. And then more Democrats will be more frightened to do the thing that they know is right to do, but they're listening to all the wrong people. What do we do about this? So we get this human infrastructure bill passed to help parents with children parents with elderly parents, uh, all the things uh, that, that we should have and we don't have. Well, the pressure is definitely on and it's really on two people. And I don't know because I'm not privy to the conversations that take place between the White House and the two key senators that stand in the way of potentially passing this legislation. I mean, th- I think that you've got 48 Democrats or Senators and you know, 48 members of the U.S. Senate who are prepared to vote for the Build Back Better agenda. Remember that this thing started off with people like Senator Sanders saying we, it should be a $6 trillion package. Right. And then a compromise was arrived at, and you had Senator Schumer, you had Speaker Pelosi, you had the Democrats come out and stand shoulder to shoulder and say, you know, we have come to an agreement. Our number is $3.5 trillion. The Democrats are united. And we got what's called a budget resolution, which is the formal document that affirms that number. It says, okay, we have given ourselves permission to move forward to write legislation to spend $3.5 trillion. And then Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema said, hold on. I'm not prepared to go there. And Manchin said, I want to pause. And we all know what happened. And so they have been negotiating with themselves, and that number is now down to what some 1.7 trillion, and I suspect that it will continue to fall because the House moved with 1.75, but now we're waiting on the Senate. So I think you're quite right. Uh, if you're paying attention and listening to the things that Joe Manchin is saying, just in the last 24 hours, he is channeling that you know he's using this current bout of inflation to say, I think. Maybe we've already done too much, and I, I'm not sure we should go forward this year. And that's where the pressure point is. You've, we've got to find some way to make him comfortable. And I'm not, in fact, <laughs> I'm not sure that it's really a genuine concern about inflation that uh, is, is what need, he needs to overcome. I think it's an excuse, uh, and he's not happy with, the scope and the size of the package and inflation is a convenient way to sort of raise a flag and say, I'm not comfortable. So we're going to go either smaller or we'll go later. And if we do, I think that, then we probably won't go at all. I can't uh, handle that. <laughs> and, well, no. I'll, and I'll tell you who else can't handle it. Uh, all those people that came out to vote for Biden in this democratic Congress uh, last year, 2020, um, a lot of them are going to stay home. They're going to go, wow, I was promised this. They would make this happen. Mm-hmm. We gave them the majority of the House, the Senate, and the, and, and the White House. And now we don't get to see this. Um, now, you and I are going to vote next year and the year after that um, because that's who we are. Um, but uh, a lot of people 
You know, we are we usually have over 100 million adults who do not vote. They're just going to go, this is what I told you, politicians, same old story. No, I have no interest in whatever they're doing. And we lose. We, we depress our vote, the Democratic vote. The, the, the people who vote for Democrats, it gets depressed next year, and we lose. We lose the House. We lose the Senate. And Biden is an island in the, in the White House. It's so critical to get this passed now. And to, I don't know what Biden has to do. I don't know. I, mean, I know I'm old enough to remember what Lyndon Johnson did when he had a cinema and, and a mansion. And they got invited to the Oval Office. The, they shut the yep. doors. They locked them. Yep. And uh, 20 minutes later, the senator from Mississippi was voting for civil rights. Yep. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, remember when it, when it was Georgia on the line? And voters in Georgia were told, you deliver Georgia and we'll deliver the check, right? Because there was this promise that Democrats made. You give us this vote and you put us in charge and that money is headed your way. Without these two seats, there is no next check for you. And sure enough, voters turned out. We got the two seats in Georgia and the checks went out. And now, because of a bill that was Democrat only, that $1.9 trillion package this March that started sending, you know, that expanded child tax credit, that $300 or $250 a month that people are getting for their to help support their families, that is because Democrats were in charge. There, that never happens without Democrats in control. And it ends at the end of this year. So if people want to see those checks again next year, there's only one way that happens. That's with the passage of Build Back Better. It's in the Build Back Better. And yet we bill. can't control mansion and we can't control cinema. We Most of us don't live in their states. So what do we do? I mean, seriously, what do we do? Because I'm telling you right now, people listening to this and, uh, and a lot of other, millions of others, feel like the, the hand is to their throat. And if we can't figure out politically how to make this happen, how to get these votes. First of all, what good are we, number one? Uh, number two, uh, there goes the House and the Senate next year. I will not let that happen, says me. I'm one person, but I'm telling you, that is where my head is at. And and I think I'm not alone. Well, you're sure not. Um, it, it's just, you know, you turn on the news and you know what people are are being bombarded with right now. It is story after story after story of, you know, inflation. It's it's really becoming entrenched in the narrative. And I think the mainstream media is playing this in a way, they're spinning this inflation and tying it to the next round of the spending package. And I think in people's minds, you're starting to see kind of some support begin to slip. And I think we've got to do whatever we can to help people understand that this current bout of inflation is in fact temporary, that this is not the new normal in the United States of America. We're working through these supply chains. The energy prices are going to come down. By early spring, I think people are going to be seeing something very different at the pump. And and a lot of this is going to be in the rearview mirror, but they're hyping this up. It's creating some fear and anxiety in people. And uh, we just need a very strong counter-narrative to keep people focused on the opportunity we have to make these investments in our people. You know, people are calling it the Kids Care and Climate Bill. This is an opportunity to make investments in our people, in our communities, and we we shouldn't let it slip through our fingers um, out of an irrational kind of fear of this inflation becoming entrenched in a part of our everyday life. It's not going to happen. How do we, how are we able to, I guess, overcome our own fears? Well, we, it would be nice if they would put someone on television other than Larry Summers to communicate yeah. with the American yeah. people. You know, all of these shows, these producers have a choice to make. They get to decide which economist or expert to bring on to talk and, and help the public understand some of these things. But inevitably it seems to me, and I watch a fair bit of this stuff because I'm I'm trying to keep a sense of where the whole narrative is going. It just seems to me that, that there's a lot of hype out there for this inflation stuff. They're not bringing on many people who could speak in a more level-headed way about where we are and why this is really pandemic-induced and related to the bottlenecks and you know the sort of growing pains. In Michael, in a lot of ways, it's 
it's a good problem to have. And it doesn't sound, I know it's not good if you're struggling to, you know, pay to fill up the tank. Um, but compared to the alternative to an economy that was looked more like it did last October, we don't want to be there. We're much better off where we are today. And some of the pain associated with higher prices at the pump and a, paying a bit more for food and so forth, it, it is going to abate. We are going to have a much better, stronger economy. If we get this next package, we're going to have a stronger social safety net to go with it. One last question. The CBO thing, this score that mm-hmm. Manchin and Cinema say they're waiting on, some, some, even some moderate, so-called moderate Democrats in Congress and the House, mm-hmm. they want the score from the Congressional Budget Office to tell them, you know, is this paid for? Are we going to go into further debt? What is this? And what what is the CBO? Is the CBO going to block this by coming up with some crazy thing? Well, I don't know is the answer to the question. I think that the White House has been saying for a week or so that they are confident. They're confident that the Congressional Budget Office, which is basically, you know, the scorekeeper who will take a look at the Build Back Better Act. They are, in fact, looking at it. And they're, they say they will have a score um, by the end of the day, Friday. And so their job is to take a look at everything Congress is proposing to do and to project the impact of all of that on the federal budget. In other words, will it add to the deficit if it does, by how much? And that's, that's the way they evaluate legislation. They don't say, how much good will this do for our climate, for our kids, for our future? That's not what they're asked to do. They're just asked to tell tell Congress what number is going to fall out of the budget box at the end of the year for the next 10 years and add that up and give it a score. Mm. So from my perspective, this is about the least useful thing you could ask someone to do in terms of advising you on major legislation, right? right? Tell me, tell me how it, tell me how it impacts the budget. That isn't an important question. Tell me how it impacts the broader economy. Tell me how it impacts the number of kids living in poverty. Tell me how it impacts our communities and the number of people who are able to get an education, who are able to get the health care they need, and so forth and so on. That's not, that's not the objective here. So, yeah, Congress uh, has asked the CBO. They created the Congressional Budget Office. They gave them this job. So it's a product of their own creation. And, you know... They, they may well come back with a score that gives moderates, as you said, in the House or people like Cinema and Manchin an, an opportunity to say it's because of the score that I can't bring myself to vote for this. Wow. So now we're on pins and needles uh, till uh, tomorrow, Friday night. Yeah, but what would Republicans do? You know, that's oh, the difference. Yeah. You, if CBO comes out with a score and they did this, they did this with the Trump tax cuts. CBO scored that legislation, came out with a score, and the Republicans said, oh, you're wrong. <laughs> it pays for itself. CBO said it would add a little over $1.4 trillion to deficits over 10 years, and then they revised it up to $1.9 trillion. Right. So call it $2 trillion. And Republicans just laughed at them. They said, I don't know what you're smoking over there at the CBO, because this thing pays for itself. You guys are, you're, you're doing funny math over there. Democrats tend not to play like that, right? They, they don't play to win in the same way that Republicans usually do. By lying, basically, what you're saying, right? Democrats, no matter what anybody thinks of them or how you wish they do more, better, whatever, they do have a hard time when it comes right down to the numbers of, of just saying, what are you talking about? That's not a two, that's a three, what are, you well, talk- have, what are you talking yeah. about? What, what, cl- what climate change? <laughs> they show deference and reverence yeah, and right. for norms and, and things in ways that Republicans don't. But I think the bigger problem is, you know, it, it is quite reasonable to say we're going to ignore this score because we're not going to let a projection of what might happen over the next 10 years where we all know that nobody knows what's going to happen over the next 10 years, this is just your best guess. And our priority is, and we are laser focused on meeting the needs of the American people, making these investments. And so thank you for the score, uh, but we're gonna stay laser focused on delivering for the American people. Stephanie Kelton, thank you so much for being on Rumble. Uh, 
with us here today. And I encourage everybody who's listening to do their part to let the White House, to let your representatives know how you feel about uh, these issues. Don't forget Stephanie's uh, book, her latest book, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. And I know what you're saying to yourself, Mike, this is not what we're going to do on Friday night. Read about modern monetary theory. I'm telling you, my friends, if you do, you will have a much better Saturday. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, thank you so much, Stephanie. And your Substack, by the way, I just want to point out again, is called The Lens with Stephanie Kelton, K-E-L-T-O-N. And you can get it by just simply going uh, and typing in. And it's the most of posts are free. Uh, but you can subscribe and support Stephanie and, and her work. And if you are a producer for the, uh, any cable news network, please, we'd like to see somebody other than Larry Summers on uh, these shows. Uh, and and uh, I know Stephanie is very busy, but I'm sure she would uh, like to talk to the American people about uh, some of this stuff in a way that we're not being talked to. StephanieKelton.substack.com is how you go uh, to her writings. Thank you very much, Stephanie, and keep up uh, the very important work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Michael. Take care of yourself. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was all very interesting. Uh, please share this with people. This is important information. We need to not be connived into thinking that this inflation situation we're in is something that it isn't. And really appreciate everything Stephanie shared with us about that. And and we need to get this other human infrastructure bill passed. We can't let put this off until after January. This has to happen right now, friends. And you must have your voices heard. So thank you for tuning in to Rumble uh, today. Uh, don't forget to send me your asks for Thanksgiving dinner conversation, how to handle the Trumpster at the table. Write me at mike at michaelmore.com or leave a voicemail on the link here on the description page and uh, ask me what you want to ask me. And I will, on our podcast here uh, uh, at the beginning of Thanksgiving week, I will share with you my advice as to how to handle the craziness at the Thanksgiving Day table. All right, my friends, thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, our jack-of-all-trades, Donald Bornstein, our researcher and overall good guy, Harrison Malkin, and to all of you um, who've been with us here now in these almost two years of Rumble with Michael Moore. Greatly appreciate it. We have a lot of work to do, uh, so let's get busy. Take care, everyone. Twice as cloudy as I'd been the night before And I went in seeking clarity I went to the doctor I went to the mountains I looked to the children I drank from the fountain We go to the doctor We go to the mountains We look to the children Unless I seek my source for some definitives Close the right